Now, before we get started, wherever you find yourself at this point in time, let's take a moment to slow everything down. Not necessarily to a complete pause, but somewhere approaching calm, or let's say, calm adjacent. So just take a slow, easy breath in. Hold it there for a few seconds, or for however long feels comfortable, and slowly breathe out. Welcome to the Blue Mind Podcast. With any luck, at this point, early on in the podcast, you're able to find a place free from disturbance, interruption, and without any of those needle-scratch moments that suddenly throw your concentration out of alignment. A luxury for sure, and one that I think we can all appreciate is not easy to find or immediately available to us all. But if we dig deep enough, it has to be possible. This do-not-disturb zone could take the form of a walk outside, or maybe it reveals itself while in late wake-up mode. Or perhaps even a regular late night where it feels like the whole world outside has tucked itself away from view. Or maybe even that beautiful state of dreamlike delirium in those early stages of a long travel. That's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Maybe it's been the same for you too, like dreams involving airports and stations and so on. But that very specific limbo-like feeling of being on a flight up there in the middle of the sky, where time itself ceases to have relevance and all those little jobs and routines just feel so distant. It makes me think of the effect the sea can have on us. When you're properly out there in it and you're no longer a human on solid ground. Something about that immense body of water and how incredibly humbling it is on our bodies it can absolutely remove those daily trivial procedures and make the grumbles and gripes feel so insignificant. Giving it some thought though, there is a presence which comes with being in the sea. It requires concentration, I mean for sheer survival in stronger tides, but it's more akin to the flow state where time dissolves. The travel and flight feeling is actually very different. The concentration isn't necessarily as tuned But that semi-hypnotic state is definitely stronger. And barring turbulence, it's definitely a fine place to be for some dedicated listening space. For now, anyway, let's consider this a journey of sorts, existing in our ears and in turn, our minds. You're listening to the Blue Mind Podcast. Think of this as your thought bubble, your safe space and your world within or outside of a world. It can be an escape or pathway in, a journey of discovery or straight up relaxation time. I'm your host, Buddy Peace, and mine will be the voice you'll hear narrating throughout. But what is Blue Mind exactly? Blue Mind is a term coined by marine biologist, scientist and writer Wallace J. Nichols, which sums up the effect bodies of water have on our brains. As humans, we contain a lot of water, over 70% or thereabouts, 
So it figures that the ocean itself would have a noticeable effect on us. In some ways it almost serves as a huge magnet to which we are drawn, be it every day if we're close to it, or of a summer holiday if we can't escape there so freely. But that's not all. In Wallace's book, Blue Mind, he goes into forensic detail to find out why our heads and bodies respond in such ways, and really explores this concept of blue mind. The book itself is very much a guidebook of water and comes entirely recommended as a companion to this podcast. Whether you're a daily swimmer through winter to winter or someone who appreciates the mere image of an ocean, this will explain it all. So let me familiarise you with the running order here on the Blue Mind podcast. There will be three main sections, each of which will be signposted thoroughly. I was speaking about travel earlier on, so let's imagine my voice is the one you might hear on the intercom at an airport when the information directly relates to your journey. It's so funny how in airports we can tune everything out, but when our numbers and details come up, our ears prick up and we're right there, focused with razor sharpness. Blue Mind Podcast, your flight will be leaving in five minutes. All passengers for Blue Mind, this is your five minute announcement. The first two sections will feature conversations I had with two wonderful guests, Paula Nerlich and Becky Early. Paula is a material designer who is currently researching food surplus and biomaterials. She'll be going into her process in fabulous detail while offering a true glimpse into her world a world which might not be immediately familiar to you. I can safely say that this was the case with me, and I was infinitely curious all along the way. I can tell you that what's so cool about all of this is that what she is doing is something that can be tried and tested from the comfort of your own home too. Okay, maybe you'll need a bit of a sense of adventure, but it's very refreshing to hear that it's an accessible process. My second guest, Professor Becky Early, is co-director for the Centre for Circular Design. If you're thinking at this point that you've heard those two words before, but not necessarily in that order, of course you are not alone. Becky will explain all and more in an enlightening and informative chat, which, as with my chat with Paula, will give you some definite points at which to jump in on the whole process and start employing it into your own life. I really can't wait for you to hear all of this. But as with all journeys, it's not the destination, my friends. We also have our regular unique Meditation with Heckles House full-timer, Lottie. She'll be delivering a unique, original piece which will lead us beautifully to the conclusion of this episode of Blue Mind. In between each of these elements, we'll have the regular thought breaks, which are your opportunities to process, check in and just pause for a moment. Give you some time to meditate on what you've just heard and maybe even make some mental notes. Let it all sink in. With journeys and travel, it's not always go, go, go. Sometimes you find yourself waiting or looking for something to do in that time before you move to the next chapter. So let's go with that. There is Blue Mind Podcast listener. We are thrilled to have you with us on the journey. And we'll meet you at Terminal 1 in just a moment. When you stop and think, even briefly about the amount of food being made and consumed out there in the world at any one time. It only takes a very small leap in thought to consider the amount of waste being generated. So I, I like to call it surplus because it's basically something that still has value, so it's not a waste. That's a great point, actually. 
and referring to it as surplus kind of gives it a new life as a resource. So thank you, Paola. Point taken. In fact, Paola, let's introduce you properly. Yeah, um, my name is Paola, Paola Nerlis. I am a material designer and I'm currently researching how we can use food waste as a resource to create new materials. For that, I'm looking at local food waste, meaning from household, surplus, and also industrial food waste to create my biomaterials. Paola has a deep interest and speciality in what's known as circular design or circular economy. We'll be exploring this fully in the second section, but very roughly speaking, it involves three principles. One, design out waste and pollution. Two, keep products and materials in use. And three, regenerate natural systems. But as I say, we'll get into that soon. So how did Paola find her way into the wide world of working with food surplus? Thinking about food waste has been with me for many years. So I've been involved in the food sharing community where we collect food surplus from shops and then shared it with the community. Years later, I guess my journey into materials started with an Instagram post (laughs) by Studio Matter. Now, allow me to intervene quickly. So Matter is a practice, uh, it's an agency, it's an institute. Uh, It was all founded by Sitao Solanki in 2015. You may not find it by Googling with conventional spellings, so be sure to use ma-tt-er.org to get there entirely worth investigating in your circular design quest and the website is a lovely place too so definitely visit and see what they're up to but back to Paula. with an instagram post by studio matter advertising an open call for anyone who would like to apply to join a material designer workshop in europe and to apply you had to look at your leftovers from your household food production or fruit preparation and think of how you could create a material from that. Because I come from textiles, um, I was really intrigued and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'll try, why not? And there are really amazing sort of open source videos and recipes out there introducing you to basic material making. So I did that and then was able to join the course, but not at Studio Matter, but in Barcelona. They collaborated with a university in Barcelona and also Polytech in Milan and invited 20 people from all over Europe to join those workshops. And there you were introduced to the sort of DIY biomaterial making from surplus. And that's how it started. And Paola was so taken with all of this that she took the ultimate step. So I quit my job. (laughs) Daring, for sure. But sometimes the inspiration takes you, right? And if it all comes at the right time and hits you in the right way, it all seems so clear. So Paola used to work at a company who produced films and put on art exhibitions. That's quite a world away from material design. But she found a through line in there somewhere, and her creativity came through. And the path was clear. Definitely, definitely. And I, I think that coming from design, you know, you learn that 
It's a lot about how you communicate things, how you combine different elements and find a way to yeah, tell the story. Especially with our art exhibitions, I really love the part of curating, finding the artist, curating the space. Yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's a good sort of part of my journey because what I do now is I combine elements of my textiles, but also this sort of imagination from film and then also thinking about how to curate different elements yeah and bring it all together you know some disciplines and introductions into techniques can be truly daunting and intimidating but paola found her way in nice and easily and didn't even have to hit the science textbooks to brush up it's like this journey of just continuous learning it's crazy because jumping into the world of materials knowing nothing of science I was so bad at science at school because <laughs> it was really sad and I'm not a good cook so again for many material designers of my kind we start yeah at home in our kitchen mixing stuff up heating it up exploring different sort of consistencies and what happens and only later it will go to a different stage but yeah I'm since I left my old job and decided to go into these materials I feel like I've been learning something new every day might it be about biodesign science how they use materials because when I studied textiles it was very clear sort of the direction that this course wanted to take us and now I'm thinking wow how could different materials be applied in architecture in interiors in packaging so this is my journey now every day is exciting <laughs> so I should tell you something about Paula's work Without the use of photos to assist, I'll try and give you some audio descriptions. Okay, so let's see here. The one project that caught my eye first was the bioplastic containers. Now, I can appreciate that a container isn't something that might necessarily have the power to catch an eye, but these are works of art. They're truly beautiful. They look like thick, rustic and stylish pottery works, kind of like mugs, but made from natural rock and marble and chipped away by time and weather. They're rugged and rough, but have that controlled chaos of a natural substance. I did some further investigating and found one of her other projects called Coco 001, which looks like bars of gold in shape, but have the color of rubies, but dipped in chocolate? I mean, something like that. They look stunning anyway. It's like natural, precious materials, shiny and new and lovely. She's done so much more, but I'll leave that to your own eyes and curious minds. The first project I mentioned just then was made using aquafaba. This is the water that you find in a can of chickpeas. You'd be forgiven for thinking that this might be called simply chickpea water. But as you'll hear, this liquid has a lot of qualities that aren't immediately obvious. I figured I'd ask Paola how it all works. Um, sure. So you mean how I make it, yeah? Yeah. Uh, how do you get from chickpea water, sorry, aquafaba, to a pliable material? Yeah, sure. Now, here's the checklist part. So you might even want to get some paper and a pen handy while Paola takes us through this. How it started was me standing in my kitchen and wondering what surplus do I have? What's left when I cook? And yeah, with chickpeas, when you cook them, 
the water will go starchy and that is called aquafaba, which is used a lot in the vegan kitchen to make foamy creams and so on, if you like it. I don't like the taste, <laughs> so I don't really use it, you know. And I like my chickpeas, so yeah, I just um, use them and consume them. And then I have loads of this liquid left. So you can have this liquid from cooking the chickpeas at home, or you buy canned chickpeas if you're feeling lazy. And then, you know, when you pour out this water, that is in the can. That is also very good quality aquafaba that you can then use. So what I did next was to think, okay, how can I give this liquid a, a solid state? So there are different ways of doing that. And I created my own recipe uh, around this liquid. First, of course, inspired by open source recipes because it was this journey of learning. But then I recreated my own recipes to adjust to the matter that I had, you know, might be a liquid or a powder. So with this aquafaba, um, a good way is to, I'll just um, share, for example, mix in a starch and maybe vinegar. Vinegar is good to make it antibacterial in a way, but it also has an impact on the final state that the material will have. I also mix in different other ingredients. Most of them I find in my kitchen. So to me, that is very important. This is the part where things can really open up to all of us. It can happen in a kitchen. It can happen in a big room with pots and pans and stoves. And the sparks can take place in a supermarket, just walking the aisles. Of course, it's helpful to have an end product in mind, but it sounds like most things you can imagine can be made. It's like making a brand new material which is completely pliable and in some ways like a 3D canvas. But it can also expand through some wild experiments. Yeah, and then I apply heat. Uh, what's very nice is you can cook or you can bake. You know, those are processes that you know from cooking. And then after a while you get a sort of dough of this material that used to be a liquid, but then it gets all gooey and you can almost knead it like dough to make it even stronger. And yeah, you can apply different techniques to add more air to it. You could e even um, add pigments, maybe natural pigments to add color. So in my materials, I don't add any pigments to it. It's just a natural color from the ingredients. Yeah, and with the aquafaba, the next step is to then shape it. So again, you can get really creative. There's a whole world of options out there and it feels like Paola is opening the doors to it. Like screen printing. So that's just some of what you can do with a surplus product that, to be honest, doesn't sound particularly tasty in its own right. But that's fair enough. It's not all about making things with tasty products, right? Or is it? But it sounds like Paola is truly on the case cracking that one. Since then I've been uh, looking at other techniques to shape materials techniques that maybe industrial designers know, you know, molding, injection molding and whatnot, what was very new to me. And yeah, I started off with the aquafaba, but because it's based on a household surplus, I also wanted to look further and see, okay, what surplus can we find in the food industry? And that took me to my cocoa material. So I looked at the industry in Berlin, that's where I live right now. And we have, luckily, a massive chocolate producer in the middle of the city. 
that must be very tough for Paola and I'm sure we all sympathise. And yeah, so I requested whether they could share some of their surplus with me to explore this raw ingredient to make my bite materials from that. And that's how I developed the cocoa. But the raw ingredient was in a completely different state than the aquafaba. So the aquafaba is a liquid, but this ingredient from the chocolate industry is dry and it can be turned into a powder. So I had to find new ways of making a material from that. Um, so I tried to create different recipes and at the moment I am at the point where I can turn this chocolate surplus into cocoa. And this all brings us on to another of her amazing products. When I saw these bars of, I wanna say gold, but it's more like chocolate gold, I instantly loved them. They look beautiful, but it's also like you could be equally happy playing with them and eating them. They have a glossy finish and look simultaneously light as a feather and heavy as lead. What's so great about it as well is that it really is a true example of circular design. It's not taking anything away and it will give back when it's been used. The uses too are wide and varied. And from what I've seen, it's a viable alternative to plastic. Finding the resources means looking at the different um, stages of food production. And with the chocolate production, I found that a lot of surplus is created at the stage where the husk comes off the bean. So yeah, I'm using that. So it's already dry and I get the whole husks, but I can turn it into a powder, which is fantastic. And the powder really smells of super yummy dark chocolate. It's really nice. It's all part of Paola's further experimentation into the world of renewable vegan biomaterials. So again, the process that I use is I add another ingredient, or with this material, I add two different ingredients. Again, edible ingredients. So compostable, edible. I like that, you know, it's very important. And then I apply heat and then there are a few other steps, but mostly it's about mixing ingredients, applying heat, controlling that heat, and then deciding how to shape the material. So is it pulling the material over the surface or is it molding it by pouring it into molds? You know, there are different ways. So with a cocoa, I mold it with prepared molds but basically it can be shaped in any solid form. And with a cocoa, you can also reshape it. It's very interesting to explore whether giving the surplus a new form is the final state of being it can be. Is it a bioplastic that then is turned into packaging, um, but after that just sort of disposed of within resource management meaning is it industrially composted you know is it just biodegradable is it home compostable but that will be its final stage well not final because then it will of course turn into fresh new soil if it's composted for example but with the cocoa i wanted to find a way of not only giving this resource a new form but could it be reused and reshaped before then at the end of its life cycle it could be composted. It's also interesting to think about that part too. 
Whether the materials made from the cocoa are the last moments in the life of the surplus material, or if those materials themselves can be reused, in effect broadening the circle. So this is the past and the present. But when thinking about the future, what does Paola dream about and want to see happening? By way of a conclusion of all of this work and change in this industry. I guess it's about sharing ideas and asking questions and that will lead you to the next step. I think it's definitely a journey. The initial dream would be that we do not have any waste. That would be the perfect situation. Or might it be that this, what we call waste right now, is not waste but a resource. So ideally, this resource would be reduced um, in its percentage worldwide, but then we find new ways. Because, yeah, I'm playing with these two ideas, you know, on the one side um, at the moment, but we also need to sort of look at the bottom-up solution. Could there be some sort of tool or machine that people could have at home to turn their yeah, resource into materials, maybe products? You can find examples of Paola's work on her website, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode. Have a look at what she's been working on, though. I mean, I can use words to explain what these items look like, but you really have to see the objects, examine the textures and absorb the colours. Her work really is as gorgeous as it is ecologically inventive and protective. I really can't wait to see where it all goes and what happens from here on. Thank you, Paola. You are listening to the Blue Mind Podcast. From the world of physical products and experimentation and all that entails, to a world that will exist entirely in your own head and hopefully transfer to your entire body. Yes, this is the place where, in the Blue Mind podcast, we move gracefully into the thought break. We don't take up space in your listening environment to advertise anything. We give you time to ponder what you've just heard, make some notes in the mental pinboard and make yourself a drink if that's where you're at, but I know this is a podcast listener myself, your instinct might be to skip ahead and automatically leap to the forward button. Let's try this instead. Leave this moment on, uninterrupted, and let your mind wander. And if you're in a place where it can happen, just indulge in the act of not having to do anything with your ears and mind, other than just hear sound. Today's thought break takes place at Palm Bay in Margate. I'll bring you back in in a couple of minutes. See you soon.
Welcome back. How was it? You know what? You don't have to answer. I hope it was great. So here in the Blue Mind bubble, of course we still have some perfection coming up from our friend Lottie by way of a unique meditation, which is coming in the final third of the podcast. But from somebody working in the broader realm of circular design, making products which reflect the sensibilities, I'd now love to introduce you to somebody who works very specifically in that area. So my name's Professor Rebecca Early. I work at University of the Arts London. I am a co-director of the Centre for Circular Design. And I'm a textile designer that really focuses on making new materials and services and systems for the circular economy. Becky has really been out there putting in the work over the past few decades. And even a brief cursory glance at her achievements will give you an idea of just how much she's been involved in. But Becky's journey began somewhere. So going back to the first page, where does the story start? I think the story really starts with recycling and being aware of recycling as a practice for textiles for, um, you know, 20 or so years. I started using recycled materials and found objects from my studio on Brick Lane in around the late 90s. And uh, I was using recycled plastic bottles made into polyester fleece and then heat pressing basically kind of imprinting found discarded objects and gloves and scarves and plants into these recycled textiles and making kind of garments and and women's wear and so I I was sort of inadvertently beginning on my sort of circular design journey 20 years ago From these early developments and projects, everything seemed to naturally develop and evolve. And then I kind of went into research that looked at sustainable design, and that's much broader than circular design. That's also looking at ethical production, at um, water impacts, energy impacts, where our raw materials are coming from, as well as um, sort of user behaviour and how we can um, affect and kind of guide better sort of use habits for textiles right through to design activism so I spent a lot of time looking at design strategy for sustainability and then around I think the sort of 2015 point we were just focusing so we just seemed to be focusing all the time on making products last longer and making products recyclable and yeah that led us into really becoming centre for circular design and then focusing down on everything that you need to know really or or that you can do as a designer towards making a circular industry. And here's where the circular design part really kicked in. I think the circular economy conversation probably began around six or seven years ago, became really sort of present on the scene when the Ellen MacArthur Foundation got set up and began to publish some really sort of milestone reports So I'm going to briefly pause Becky and interrupt her for a second just to drop in for a quick word about the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. So in a very broad nutshell, they work to essentially bring about a transition to a circular economy for a variety of companies. This happens in a huge variety of methods, of course, um, but that's a very rudimentary version. So again, I will link to the Ella MacArthur Foundation in the show notes for this episode. It became really sort of present on the scene when the Ella MacArthur Foundation got set up and began to publish some really sort of milestone reports. And then in the last couple of years has really experienced exponential growth. 
to the point now where, you know, lots of funders are focusing on it. Um, lots of people are sort of seeing it as a way to engage the broader set of stakeholders around the biggest issues of our time. It's, it's sort of notoriously difficult, uh, easier in some sectors than others. And most people are sort of fearful that it requires such a sort of systems change on such a scale that we're never going to achieve it. Um, which I think is a, you know, actually a valid concern. But I think the driving force for us is that the benefits of aiming for circularity mean that we are, in a sense, the best sustainable designers we can be. So at the beginning of this episode, you will have heard me grapple without any grace or finesse a description of circular design. Here is a far more elegant and succinct explanation. Becky, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> yeah, okay, the bite-sized version of circular design. It's making design decisions specifically to ensure that we are able to reuse our resources in ad finitum. So you see everything in terms of flows and you try to produce products that help you flow a, a material good through a system, through a series of users into a recycling or a regeneration process and then back out the other side and onto somewhere else. So you're constantly using resources in the most um, efficient way possible. This is a huge thing happening here. Something that feels like a real disruption of an element in modern living which is so easy to get carried along by. A stream or a lane which we can easily travel down without seeing any of the alternative paths. There's a convenience to it and of course it makes complete sense that we might take the route with less potential obstacles. Time is precious. We all have so much going on and I can speak for myself when I say that not all of us have the necessary skills to, what's the phrase, make do and mend, right? So maybe some responsibility can be given to companies and perhaps there are ways out of those streams that lead to new ways and methods of entering this amazing circle Becky described. Well, having worked with quite a few companies now with these circular um, design approaches and sort of taken designers and a broad set of members of staff through these, these sort of workshops and thinking moments, it becomes quite clear that some products you can kind of make circular because they naturally lend themselves to circular. Perhaps if they're monomaterial, they're made from just one core material like cotton or pure polyester, then you can kind of imagine uh, a scenario where they will be reprocessed and remade. The problems are that these companies don't have take-back services in place, so they send products out into the world but have pretty much no interest in what happens after they leave the shop. And certainly no part of the business has been built around, you know, bringing the product back. Like other businesses have changed, like Interface Carpets or Philips light bulbs, they have built service models where the customers never really own the product, they're just leasing uh, the service of having the product. Well, fashion and textiles just isn't there yet. So, you know, my area has got a big uphill struggle to sort of try to convince the consumer that they can have clothing and, uh, you know, shoes and cool goods without having to sort of feel like they they own them forever often the answer is that businesses need to build a parallel sister company that is completely circular from the beginning and then try to grow that and then try to transition the business over the classic problem really is that the supply chain is linear so 
to sort of turn a company into a circular company, you have to redesign that entire supply chain. And that's where a lot of the building blocks are of the, of the um, economic success of the company. And really, you're sort of dismantling that and reframing it and rebuilding it. And you need new suppliers and, and new materials and new processes. In no way does a CEO look at that proposition and say, hey, yeah, I'm going to make money. Let's invest in that. You know, it's only at absolute pressure points do, do companies sort of go, you know what, this can't carry on or this isn't good business in the longer term. We need to find a better way to, to exist. Becky is working hard out there to try and find the routes to these exciting new paths and it's valuable work. What I was saying about that stream and that easy route to convenience. I can speak personally when I say that until recently I hadn't even heard of the term circular design or circular economy. So it goes that not everyone will be aware that such practices and methods are available to us in everyday life. But there are companies out there who are really starting to lead the charge in it all. Yeah, G-Star Raw um, have a pretty um, switched on R&D division headed up by uh, Adriana. They really, she's able to spend her time looking at all the research, looking at the scientific breakthroughs and then putting sort of new projects in place and these might be the loss leaders in a company they might not be the greatest um, high volume sales you know they're not going to be I always refer to it like climbing mountains if you think of the base camps going up Everest then there are certain people that establish those base camps just a bit higher just a bit higher just a bit higher And, you know, Puma did it back in, I think, 2011, 2012, when they made a shoe that was completely recyclable. I think it was the upper half composted whilst the lower half, the sole, would go into a technical recycling cycle. So they kind of took the cradle to cradle principles and then made a a product which came apart and was circular in two different ways. So there are quite a few companies now really embracing the thinking and innovating, but they need the space and the time to actually make it specifically suit their business model. You know, one last example would be Philippa K, the Swedish brand we work with. They made the Eternal Trench Coat, which is now in the V&A archives. Just a, just a quick interruption for those unfamiliar. Um, the V&A, or Victoria and Albert Museum, to give it its full title, is an incredible museum near South Kensington in London, housing over 2 million permanent items and regular massive exhibitions. Very, very highly recommended to one and all if you're near or far from London. And this was like a black waterproof, showerproof raincoat completely made from um, recycled polyester. That dyed, which means that you only use the dye that you need for the pellets that you make the fibre from. You don't have this big wash of liquid that you're dyeing with. And then they actually made a product that could be mended, uh, that could be brought back to store to be mended. So they're encouraging the consumer to keep it for as long as possible. And then everything about the coat makes it fully recyclable at the end of life. And here's the key. They made everything with intention to say, here's a circular product. And then they give it to the consumer and then they say, will you invest in it? Is this part of your lifestyle? And I think that part of circularity is actually getting people to see these circles that exist in nature, that exist in the world and these systems where no waste is produced. In a funny way, that's what we all want. I thought of this circular journey with clothing and entering this cycle as being like a participant. You're actively involved in the life cycle of a garment. 
you join the story and rather than this piece of clothing joining you for a bit and then fading into the past, you're participating in its journey. That's really nicely put. I think that you'd be in the percentage of consumers that would see it that way, which is how we would hope. You know, they describe it in Cradle to Cradle, which is a real Bible of a book, really. Um, So that is Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things, written by architect William McDonough and chemist Michael Braungart, and certainly a book which you can consider in addition to your reading list if you are looking to further expand your circular horizons. This will, of course, be linked to in the show notes. As being the borrowers of things. So, you know, they're just with us for a while in this circular journey and then we pass them on. And whilst they're with us, yes, we look after them and we make them last as long as possible, but they're going to flow and go somewhere else. And that is a real like sea change in thinking because 70% of the average woman's wardrobe is unworn. So we don't think like that. We think of having things, you know, pressing a button, clicking, collecting or buying something and then owning it and then actually probably putting it in the charity shop or putting it even in the bin, which still happens these days. And that's the end of our story. Circular economy thinking isn't like that at all. It's much more generous. Generous, that's the word. So the flow and the stream I mentioned earlier, maybe that's the stream that can lead into the sea. It's possible. It will take work and it will be hard work, but it will be worth it. Also, a really beautiful point Becky made, which I think really gets to the core of it all, is that... Nature is circular, right? So it is the ultimate circular system that plants will grow and then they will decompose and compost. They'll provide nutrients to the soil. The soil will then replenish and grow again. When you look at it, it's a beautiful system. It seems so obvious and so natural. But here we are talking about everything circular and the benefits, who's involved and so on. It makes me curious to know if there's a conclusion or an endgame of sorts. It all feels like a truly great thing happening, but I wanted to know what Becky thought would be the conclusion of it all. I love the idea that design is a completely different discipline when you put a circular lens on it. I love design, I love making, but circularity gives it meaning. And if you've got to strive to make the material just right, then that's a creative challenge. And if you've got to look for exactly the right kind of product so that people will want to keep it and pass it on, then that's a brilliant creative challenge. And then I'm really excited about the service culture that could involve the fashion industry because fashion is about pleasure and it's about connection and community and sort of creative joy and expression. And I'm really interested in how you can get those without consuming a product. You can have that through experiences. You can have that through a service. It's a beautiful idea, an almost utopian vision where we can contribute to an economy which doesn't take anything away from the environment. But also a vision where environmental consciousness and style aren't mutually exclusive. As a professor and expert in this world, though, what excites and inspires Becky about it all? What's the guiding light for her? I think that we would be more conscious of materials and their value and have a a more heightened understanding of where things need to go. So it's like our kind of domestic recycling boxes. Even if you're a really good recycler, you could still find it a hassle. You can still be confused as to whether something's recycling or not. I think we need to be 
active participants in these systems with a lot more knowledge and, and actually part of systems that work better. So if we're putting our clothing into bins in the home, they are going out on journeys. I think the way that I see the future is this really blended palette like this ecosystem of options that we can have we can buy our investment pieces the, the pieces that we love that cost quite a bit of money and we can also buy second hand and we can buy vintage and we can be given things but actually I also think that we need speed in our lives as well I think we need things that are bright yellow and you know just for tomorrow and in that case that needs a totally different material recipe and I might be able to get it by renting and hiring and having things delivered to me or they might be compostable. And so the research I'm involved in sort of sees all of these different categories as innovation areas and business models. Some of them combine and some of them are just sort of radically new and don't exist yet. But the vision is that people will have wardrobes that satisfy them at a much deeper level without spending more money. What a perfect situation. To be in an area which is inspiring to you has potential to change so much for the better and where there is essentially a life's work waiting for you to get your hands dirty with. This episode really has brought us two guests who have really found their thing. And you might be the same as me in this respect, but I always get so fired up by this, by people who have totally found what they love to do and by the sounds of it, will always have this spirit in them. Before Becky signs off, though, she has a business proposition for you. For us all, maybe. And I did ask her if I could include this in the podcast, because I think it's golden. Check this out and tell me this idea isn't brilliant. One of my pet ideas is Menderoo. It's basically a Deliveroo moped with a box on the back, with um, a fantastic textile graduate that zips around to your house and picks up your mending and your sewing projects and takes it back to their, you know, COVID-free studio and works on it and then brings it back to you and gives you a bit of help and advice with the mending. Because, I mean, in a family situation, you've always got buttons, zips, waistbands. You know, you need to mend all the time. And so I have this big pile and I just look at it and feel guilty because I'd rather go and weed the garden and get outside. So, you know, something like Menderoo is a way that you would have a more sort of um, sustainable fashion habit you know or profile but it's brought to you in a service and one that's kind of fun and creative and you know about the next generation of entrepreneurs essentially come on circular economy on the road how about that i love it so much i'll leave that one there for you now but just remember where you heard it from first okay thank you so much professor becky early for your time and all of your gems and jewels and nuggets of wisdom It was a great pleasure to talk to you. So far, we've heard from two experts in the field, giving us some valuable information and inspiration in all things circular design. From the products and possibilities to the whole idea itself and how it all works. It's a lot to take in and get to grips with. I completely get it. So at this point in the podcast, I'll give you some nice distance to refine and refresh, sharpen and replenish, and kind of reset for the run-up to the final stages. So please feel free to leave everything running here. You don't need to pause. I'll keep it all here as you left it. But if you want to sort out your drink situation, 
shutter window maybe, or open one. Or just stand up and shake around a bit. Take the chance now to do it right. And come back in through the Blue Mind bubble door, where we can catch up right where you left off. In the meantime, as with the earlier thought break, I'll arrange some sounds for you if you're staying here. And come back in in a couple of minutes or so. Alright, back soon. Welcome back to the Blue Mind Podcast. I'm Buddy Peace. I've been your host and narrator throughout, and it's been an absolute pleasure to guide you through these busy waters of, for this episode, circular economy and design and what it all means. So far we've heard from creator and designer Paula Nerlich and from professor, researcher and maker Becky Early. But now, as I promised back in the introduction, we'll spend some time in the lavish confines of the Heckles House Meditation Labs It's my great honour to reintroduce you to the glorious Lottie, a therapist up in Heckle's house, who has written and crafted a unique meditation for this episode of Blue Mind, which will give you an absolutely perfect space for thoughts, non-thoughts, visualisations and mental meanderings, which you can take with you into the day or if you're in the night right now, carry through to tomorrow. I'll be back at the end, returning calmly to sign off, but for now, dear listeners, the wonderful Lottie. Hi, I'm Lottie. I'm one of the therapists at Heckle's House, and today I'm going to guide you through a short meditation. When you've been out in nature this autumn, have you noticed or felt anything different this year? It's believed that we're currently experiencing a mast year. The word mast describes the fruits of the forest. And a mast year is when trees and shrubs produce a super abundant crop of fruits and nuts, like acorns and chestnuts. 
trees all over the country, close together or hundreds of miles apart, coordinate to come into a mast year all at the same time. We don't fully understand the combination of factors that bring about a mast year and allow the trees to work in unison. It is known that weather conditions are important and we also know that trees do communicate with each other via networks of fungi linking their roots. But the mast year is still one of nature's mysteries. It happens as a way for the trees to balance the population of the small mammals and birds which feed on the acorns and other nuts, like squirrels, mice, badgers and jays. The trees produce small crops for a few years, keeping the population in check. When the mast year happens, there's more food than the creatures can possibly eat, which causes a boom in population. And importantly, it guarantees some leftover seeds, which will then germinate into trees. For the trees, producing a crop of seeds, nuts or fruits uses a lot of energy and stunts the tree's growth a little bit. So by having a super abundant crop, but not on a yearly basis, the existing trees can thrive as well as new trees germinating when they need to. Here's a quote from Marianne Williamson. She says, Embryos turn into babies, buds turn into blossoms, acorns turn into oak trees. The same programming that exists in them exists in each of us to manifest our highest potential. What's the difference between these things and us? That we can say no. So today, say yes. Now, if you feel comfortable doing so, I'll lead us through a short guided meditation. So get comfortable sitting or lying down. Take a couple of deep breaths. So we'll breathe in for the count of four, then pause for a moment and then breathe out for the count of five. So breathe in, one, two, three, four, and then breathe out, one, two, three, four, five. Breathe in, one, two, three, Four. And breathe out. Two, three, four, five. And another deep breath in. Two, three, four. And a deep breath out. Two, three, four, five. Bring your attention to your back. How's it feeling? Without changing it, just notice if it's straight or if it's slumped. Notice if there's any tension held in your muscles and allow your back to adjust in its own way, which feels right to you. And just notice what happens to your breathing when you do. Take a few more breaths in and out 
make sure you breathe right down into your belly. Breathe in, two, three, four. Now, two, three, four, five. And another breath in, two, three, four. And now again, two, three, four. Now close your eyes, imagine you're an acorn, what would it feel like to grow from an acorn into a majestic oak tree? Imagine you're in the soil, there's plenty of sunlight to help you grow, plenty of rain. There's plenty of nutrients in the soil to provide you with all you need to thrive. There's a divine energy that runs through you and guides you. Connect with the divine intelligence of the universe. Know that this connection is available to you whenever you need it. Now imagine you're an oak tree. You're providing a home for birds, food for insects and animals, oxygen for people. Listen to the sounds of the forest. The birds singing the leaves rustling in the wind. Feel the squirrel's paws scurrying up and down your trunk and feel your strong roots anchoring you to the earth and connecting you to the rest of the trees and the forest all around you. Just stay present in this moment. Now take one more deep breath in. And out again, two, three, four, five. And then just slowly come back into the room. Blue Mind Podcast was produced, arranged and scored by me, Buddy Peace. Infinite thanks to our guests, Paula Nerlich and Professor Becky Early for providing their time so generously. Links will be provided, of course, for you to follow their journeys. And of course, thanks to Lottie for her beautiful meditation. Blue Mind is the name of an excellent book by Wallace J. Nichols, which is essential reading for anyone with an interest of all things sea-related. Thank you so much to Wallace for spiritual inspiration for this podcast. The Blue Mind podcast is produced for Heckles, who you can find online at heckles.co.uk, which is spelt H-A-E-C-K-E-L-S, or physically at number 18 Cliff Terrace, Margate, which you'll find up near the old Lido. You can also follow Heckles on Instagram over on at Heckles 
for product updates, ocean-based positivity, and innovations from all over the world. For regular posts and stories, so it's almost like a constantly evolving blog of sorts. Loads for you to get lost in. We're also on Spotify, where I compile weekly playlists. Just do a quick search for Hakels on Spotify, you'll find us. The playlists are around an hour or more of blissful sonics and beautiful music from all around the world, compiled and selected by hand without any algorithm assistance. Each week is totally unique and is like an escape button if you need it. Most importantly of all though, so many thanks to you for listening and being part of this. It's an absolute thrill that you're here and listening to the end. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Good morning, listeners. We are now coming in for landing. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for flying. Blue mind. We wish you a safe journey from here to wherever you find yourself. We hope to see you soon.